I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. With all the uh, hype around uh, the coronavirus and universal health care, I have one of my favorite recurring guests on, a student of Murray Rothbard and defense attorney, Michael Harris. How's it going, Michael? Oh, doing well, Tommy. How are things down in your corner of the world? Ah, not too bad. We're still busy. We're running, you know. <laughs> trucking trucking hasn't stopped yet, so that's a good thing. As when you need to worry when trucking stops. Yeah, I would say so. Well, up here in Dallas, everything is going crazy because of the uh, coronavirus. And uh, I personally think the panic related to the virus is more dangerous than the virus itself for the vast majority of Americans. But I'm a lawyer, not a medical doctor. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the way I've been looking at it. And that's what I've been trying to get across to people is like, hey, this this panic is not helping anything. Um I understand that it's a scary situation, but it's not anything that worry is going to to fix. So we we got on to talk about PMAs. What what is, what is a PMA? A PMA is a abbreviation for Private Membership Association, and basically it is a. Uh, let me just give you a little overview of how I came to discover and get involved in it. About uh, 15 years ago, I fell and fractured my right elbow, and it wasn't anything just terribly serious. Did have to put in a cast for six weeks, keep it immobile, and then afterwards, I wanted to do the physical rehab. And basically, the healthcare cartel, which healthcare is a cartel in America these days, it told me that I had to get consult with an orthopedic surgeon before I could be referred to a physical therapist. And I told him that, frankly, I thought that was a bunch of bull, that I was a lawyer, there had to be a loophole somewhere, and I was gonna find it by God. And <laughs> that led me to a chiropractor who's a, just a really interesting guy. I won't go into details unless you really want to, but he told me, Michael, you can accomplish the same thing by doing yoga. And so I got to really like this guy a lot. And he uh, he didn't fit within the mainstream healthcare cartel. And so basically he uh, he wanted to, he had studied with his father. Right. And so he, he was inheriting his father's practice. But uh, these two cats, they just didn't fit in in the system at all. So we, we kind of put our heads together of how can we set up a way so that they can operate legally on the one hand, yet outside this, this structure and the rigid system of the healthcare cartel. And that's where we created, well, I'm gonna say we, but I was a part of getting involved in uh, setting up uh, private membership associations. And uh, any questions so far? <laughs> No, no, I'm I'm keeping okay. up with you. Okay. Uh, well, basically, it's a well-established principle in our legal system, and I'd go so far as to say it's the, the best-kept secret in our legal system, 
is in an up uh, the bottom line is that we have freedom of, to associate with right. people in the first amendments it's uh in, included as the uh, you know freedom to peacefully assemble mm -hmm. uh, it's also included in the fifth amendment and uh you know right to enter into contracts voluntarily incorporated in the 14th amendment from the feds to the state and this is a way that allows alternative medical practitioners to legally operate in the private domain without a license and mm -hmm. of course that's libertarians we're not too wild about licensing to begin with <laughs> and this is a way to get around the requirements of licensing right and the main key point to keep in mind is there is a public domain there is a private domain and you, you can legally do business in the private domain. You can legally do business in the public domain. The real take home point is you can legally do business in both the private and the public domains. Right. And now is this like, um, it, it, when I was reading through the notes that you had sent me, um, the, the first thing that popped in my head is the, um, direct primary care physicians. Is, is this along the same lines as that? Well, I think direct primary care more deals with insurance and what oh. insurance, uh, you know, third party reimbursement is the technical term. And several primary physicians have set it up to where they can operate both in the private and in the public. So mm -hmm. this is a, it's a growing trend that more and more uh, medical providers are setting up to where they can do both. I mean, for example, I mean, you're in the Beaumont region, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so Beaumont's close to the Louisiana border, fairly close to it. Yes, sir. And, of course, there's restrictions about uh, doctors being able to treat people in Texas and in Louisiana. Louisiana's got a lot of just strange laws, okay? Yeah. And my mother, my mother family from Louisiana, okay, I love them, but they have some just really, really strange laws. And so... Some doctors, it's my understanding in the Beaumont area, have created it kind of like, you know what, we'll have, we'll just have a private membership associations specifically to deal with people from Louisiana so that we don't have to run afoul with providing services to people coming across the state border. That's just one example. And I'm told that there's one doctor who's gone so far as he's got an office with two doors two entries one door for his public texas patients to come in and another door for his private membership association people whether they're from texas louisiana arkansas or wherever they can come in that door and so that's his way of kind of setting a distinction two entries into the same office right Right. And so that's his way of getting around uh, regulations and uh, licensing problems dealing with uh, patients from other states. Yeah. And, and people don't understand licensing. Um, even even uh, I was talking to my wife the other day and um, she she had brought up Jacob Hornberger and his campaign and how he had said something about medical licensure. And um, 
she was like, that's one thing I don't agree with them on. Like, I want my doctor to have gone to, to college and gotten a license. And I'm like, baby, they, they don't get a license from college. They get a degree from college. They get a license yeah. from the state. It, they, they're buying permission to, to operate and to act within the state. That's what a license is. And uh, she, she was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. So some people don't even understand the licensing aspect and, I've never met anybody that's gone into a doctor's office and, and checked their, uh, the license on their wall. But, uh, I've always known of people that check for that, that college, uh, degree and find out what, what college they went to. So, so it's, uh, the licenses, if, if people really understood that it really meant nothing other than someone bought permission from the state to operate within the state. Well, I can mainly talk as a licensed attorney. <laughs> I mean, I, and uh, the legal profession is a cartel. I'm part of it. Okay. I can mm. talk about them. And uh, actually I served on a state, Texas state bar grievance committee where we judged attorneys who were accused of violating the uh, code of professional conduct. And I, I graduated from SMU law school, took the bar exam, failed the bar exam the first time I took it, but you know, Hey, I passed second time and I mean I've been a fully licensed attorney for 20 years and like I said when I served on the state bar grievance committee we had to judge attorneys for allegedly violating the uh, code of professional conduct and I can tell you that in the three years I was on the state bar I recommended two attorneys be disbarred for their behavior and both times were attorneys who just yeah, one time was an attorney who just blatantly defrauded, committed fraud on one of his clients. He was a personal injury lawyer representing a blind woman, and he said, hey, or sign this, this document here, giving me all the money. <laughs> so, I mean, it was blatant fraud. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, you, but you deserve to be disbarred for that. Yeah. Uh, the second one was a lawyer who ironically he was representing a doctor in a medical malpractice case and the case the jury was literally coming up to start picking the jury and the guy just ran out of the courtroom just blatantly abandoned his client and i mean that i, I think we could have lived with that but he had to just blatantly commit perjury at the hearing and come up with this cock and bull story about how he discovered a conflict of interest at the last minute. And all of us at the committee is just kind of like, you know, you just took an oath here a few minutes ago to tell the truth under penalty of perjury. And then you just blatantly committed perjury. So it was kind of the classic case of the, the cover up being worse than the crime. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we, we voted that he should be disbarred for that. But those are the two times in, in when I was on the committee, as far as my licensing of when I felt, I felt like attorneys should be, have their license taken away from them. So I, mean, I, I have more of a moderate view on licensing. I mm. think it's very clearly abused. Like I don't see how you need a license to braid hair and fish or something like that. You right. Know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's definitely gotten carried away. Right. And it's, it's a means to limit the supply of, you know, it's, it's a barrier to entry in business to benefit uh, the established people who are established in the business to cut out newcomers. Right. And uh, 
Now, I can tell you that my sources tell me in the medical profession that their licensing has is really got a problem. I know one attorney who a great deal of his practice, his law practice, involves representing healthcare providers, doctors, in their licensing process. And he told me point blank, that system is totally broken. It just oh, does really? not function at all. And I think that's a big part of the reason why more and more medical providers are moving in the direction of private membership associations. Right. And okay, so back to the private membership associations. Um, when there was a there was a gentleman that Tom Woods had interviewed, I don't know, I want to say it was like three years ago, and he was from I want to say Ottawa, Kansas. I'm, I could be wrong, um, but he was a he was a uh, a family physician, a primary physician, and the way he operated was that he would charge a flat rate to his to his uh, patients, like let's say $50 a month. And he didn't, he didn't accept medical insurance. They would pay him $50 a month. Anytime they needed um, to, to have a visit with him, they could do so in the office via Skype or he would make house calls. And he would also give, um, provide basic pharmaceuticals at no additional charge. And the only time that you started running into additional charges is if you had things like x-rays and additional testing that were above and beyond what your, what your basically membership um, covered. And so the way that I, I kind of explained it to people from what I understood, and I listened to the episode a few times, but it's been a while since I listened to it. But the way it always like struck me is he ran it kind of like a gym membership. To where you you pay for access to his facilities and to his time on a month-to-month -month basis, fifty dollars a person or whatever it may be, maybe a discount for a family, and and therefore you don't have to worry about the the insurance, the four hundred dollar a month insurance bills. You're paying fifty dollars a month to have access to this particular doctor. Now, unlike Blue Cross and Blue Shield or one of these cartels you wouldn't be able to change doctors under the same plan whatever you had paid the guy you had lost so if you become unhappy with them and you want to change doctors then you would have to find another method of payment to pay the other doctor but it sounded like a, a very reasonable way especially for uh, more impoverished families that aren't making a whole lot of money that can't afford the four five hundred dollars a month um, insurance payments to cover their family. To that have definitely basic sounds like it coverage. was a uh, private membership association, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the because one of the complaints I've heard from doctors is is that basically we, when it comes to dealing with insurance companies, the reimbursement from insurance companies is more hassle than it's really worth. Right. Uh, a lot of them have complained that basically they have to sit down there with computer and fill out the form as they're talking to people so it's kind of like rather than actually be treating someone i spend all my time just basically filling out a, slots in a computer program so a lot of uh, doctors are getting to where they don't like insurance they're kind of like we just want to get away from this system right and so that sounds like that is uh 
part of, and it, it falls under the legal concept of our freedom to associate. And so that gives the providers much more flexibility of how they can run their practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, like my chiropractor, he he's able to have more say in who he sees, how he treats them. And uh, I get to interact with him and his daughter much more than having to, you know, deal with the insurance company. So it's kind of like he would rather deal with me personally than deal with an insurance company. I would rather deal with him personally than deal with an insurance company. (laughs) It saves saves me a lot of money. It saves him a lot of headache. Yeah, yeah, and that's where I was going. Like for a more impoverished family, someone who's making, you know, maybe a single mother that's making $25,000 a year, it's, it's much more feasible to expect her to pay you know, $50 a month or, or whatever. And in for a membership, then it is to expect her to, to come out with these excruciatingly painful in, uh, insurance payments every month. I mean, I've, I ended up canceling insurance years ago because the payments were, were just the monthly expenses were just getting so extraordinary. I was like, yes. I, I'm not paying, I'm not going to pay $80 a month for myself. But if I want to add my three kids, or at the time it was three kids when I finally canceled, I have five now, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay an additional, you know, $500 a month. Whenever my, my insurance isn't even their primary insurance, it's a secondary insurance. You know, they have insurance through their, their mom too. So like, I'm not doing that. So what I ended up doing is I just made, worked out a deal with my ex-wife that I paid her money every month instead of paying insurance companies money every month, you know, because mm-hmm. yeah, it was that... just way too much. I just could not, I couldn't, I couldn't do it and still survive. Oh yeah. And to me, when they came out with the quote unquote affordable care act, it, it really just took a rotten system and made it even more rotten to right. me. I can tell you in my personal case, at, you know, when the, the quote unquote affordable care act, came into being, I was paying about $250 a month for my personal insurance. Right. My mother, who was about 75 years old at the time, was also paying $250. She had gotten hers because she was a retired government employee. Her her rates were frozen. My rates, on the other hand, because suddenly I'm required by the new Affordable Care Act I'm required to pay for things like uh, pre-existing conditions, cover premature born babies, mm-hmm. uh, drug and alcohol treatment, which is kind of like, you know, hey, I'm in my, I was like in my late 40s. I don't have children. I don't plan on having any children. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I, and why am I paying for all this stuff that I have absolutely no need for whatsoever? Right. But what killed me was, I mean, my mother's insurance rates were frozen at $250 a month and God bless her. I'm happy for, for that. She didn't have to pay any more than that, but my rates tripled. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why am I a, a, a pretty healthy guy in his early fifties why am I paying three times more than an elderly woman who's had two heart attacks in her eighties? I'm like, right. and that's when I told him, I was like, you people are just crazy. If y'all think I'm going to be paying, 
you know, $600 a month, you know, $700 a month for insurance. That's just, it's crazy. So I, that's when I was kind of like, I'm like you, I told them I'm done with this system right. and I got out of it. Right. Yeah. And then that, well, and then they tried to, then they tried to make you pay that fine through the mandate, which I just refused to pay. I was just like, I'm not paying that. I don't, I don't care what y'all tell me. I'm just not paying it. <laughs> and, so, and I well, did. I'm a good, fortunately, I know a good lawyer. So I was able to argue that I, I fit within the hardship category. So they didn't challenge me on it. So <laughs> I, no, I never, I never got any trouble from it. I would just tell, I would just, I would just put it on my, uh, my, what was it, was it called? Uh, that quick, not QuickBooks. Uh, my wife's been working with QuickBooks. I haven't it stuck in my head. TurboTax. I just put it on there that I, I you know, I, I would exempt myself from it. And I never got any questions, but I was like, I'm not paying that. I, I just refuse to pay it, you know, because I'm, no, I'm not going to pay any. And, and it came out to be more, well, not more. It was almost the exact same amount they wanted to charge me um, as it would have been if I would have just carried myself on insurance. And I was like, no. Nah, I, I didn't have any insurance. I'm not going to pay the rates of insurance, you know, of course, you know, yeah, I guess I'm guessing you're self-employed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So my insurance, but part of mine was picked up by my company. So I, my rates weren't near as high as yours were. So, well, the advantage I could have had was it, I could have claimed it as a legitimate business expense and written it off on my taxes but to me it just wasn't worth it yeah and uh i mean i if it had gone to the point i think i could have made a very good argument under the fifth amendment of the constitution that they were taking away my rights without due process of law but uh they, basically my understanding was is that the kind of like the bureaucrats wasn't too wild about enforcing the mandate to collect ins you know, for private insurance anyway. And I, I, I disagreed with the United States Supreme Court. I don't see how under the Constitution they can require us to purchase the product of a private company. I, I don't see how the 16th Amendment, the, I mean, the 16th Amendment says they can impose a tax. Yeah, okay. I mean, I can see that, but I don't see how they can mandate that we buy a private company's product as as a statutory requirement well and, i mean uh, but that doesn't even I, yeah they might they may have set a precedent as far as healthcare goes at that point in time but this isn't the first time that the the american public have been expected to 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 pay and forced to pay for uh private companies you know profiteering i mean you can go back when uh and you read you know the progressive era by Rothbard and the whole first chapter he's talking about the railroads and how they used you know they forced public the public to to pay for these railroads you know so it's 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 this crony relationship that really you know has it kind of come out from under the rock that it was hiding under here recently it's like they don't even care if you know that it's all a scam now well that's something that uh, rothbard taught us he says businesses cooperate with the government usually to either one pass their cost on to the taxpayers or two to cut out their competition yeah and uh of course the rise of the industrial military complex and don't get me started on the the prison 
in industrial complex. <laughs> That's a topic for another podcast. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I mean, yeah. So I, yeah, that with the insurance companies, uh, they're trying to cut out their competition. They're trying to pass their cost on to taxpayers. And it's very blatantly obvious to anybody who was who studied Murray Rothbard that that's what they're doing. And I think you're going to see more and more of the private membership associations come in as a way around it. And also being the good Murray Rothbard student that I am, allow me to point out these countries that have all this grand universal health care, they don't seem to be doing any better at coping with the coronavirus, by the way. So obviously, uh, yeah. yes. Yeah. 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 So I, I digress that. But well, the, the I, only exception, and I'm not sure what the, the healthcare system is in South Korea, but South Korea seems to have a pretty good grasp on it. And they were able to get, and I, I think part of that was because they were able to get um, a 24 hour test uh, much quicker than almost any other country. Um, the United States, the test that the United States um, was operating under up until yesterday, I did read something today that they're actually lifting the bureaucracy and the FDA has approved this, uh, what they call, I, I guess it's pronounced Roche, R-O-C-H-E test that is going to um, fast track the testing and get results back much quicker than the other tests, but the, the test they had been using prior to the FDA lifting the regulation on, on the Roche test um, was taking up to 72 hours to get results back. So that was allowing people to spread the virus. And I think, um, I think when, when hindsight, you know, being 2020, once we get through this and, and we see the actual results we're going and, and actually take the time to examine we're going to realize that the death rate was much lower than than they're trying to say it is right now um just due to the fact that 80 to 81 percent of the people that are coming into contact with the virus and, and contracting the virus aren't showing any symptoms whatsoever so if you're not showing any symptoms whatsoever then you're probably not going to go get tested and if you're not getting tested, then there's no record of you ever having the virus. And if you come out through the other side without dying, then you go onto the survivor survivor board. So I think when we really look back on it, this this number that they're pushing at as between one and three percent, it's actually going to be um, closer to like point point four or point six percent, like what you're seeing in South Korea. Yeah, I've also heard that South Korea was system was kind of like they they were better prepared for it and they're better responding to it. Now, the last report I've heard here in the state of Texas is that so far only one person has died from the coronavirus like symptoms is the phrase they use. And it's like a 90 year old man in South Texas and uh, you know, my mother died last year at the age of 83, so I'm sympathetic to his right. family, but kind of like, come on, the guy was 90 years old, okay? Right. So, <laughs> you know, how much longer is he really likely to go anyway? Yeah. I mean, I didn't know him personally. Uh, like I said, I'm sympathetic to his family for what they're going through. Right. My 83-year-old mother died six months ago, but it's kind of like, hey, you know what? It was just her time, all right? right. I mean, 
call called me cruel and heartless, but she was ready to go. And, and yeah, she was my cool. my grandma just uh she passed away in January and she was in her eighties, you know. And you know, sometimes it's hard to watch, you know, because they they've had such a good life and they've been there your mm -hmm. whole life and there's there's so many memories but you know again like you said it's, it's sometimes it's their time to go and and if you really take the time to to look at the numbers which i don't think a lot of people are looking at the numbers um you're seeing that the average age of people dying are is 81 i think i think uh the actual number was 81.4 years old um from the from from the age of 60 to the age of 80 you're uh the chances of you dying, it, it like goes up tenfold. Um, it's something like 15.8% of people 80 or above or are dying uh, um, once contracting this virus and below 60, it's something like 0.4%. Uh, and once you get, once you get below 40 years old, it's 0.2%. So it's, it's something that Ron Paul points out. And oh, by the way, Ron Paul was a practicing medical doctor, and he points out that uh, usually over 6,000 people every year die from the ordinary influenza virus in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming majority of those people are elderly people mm -hmm. who have, uh, are people who have problems with their immune system. Right. So I, I firmly believe that the overwhelming majority of Americans who have an, uh, uh, just an ordinary immune system will be, will be able to handle this virus, mm -hmm. coronavirus, without any problems. Now, I do think it's legitimate to say well, if, uh, if our health, if our emergency rooms are just flooded with people who have a fever and a cough, it's going to overwhelm the system. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that's okay. That's a legitimate concern. Absolutely. That that will happen. But, but part of that, uh, part of that happening, I'm sorry, but I was just going to say part of that happening is due to the, the hyperventilating from the media. Yes. You know, it's, it's like, if y'all would just calm down, you know, like, we gotta we gotta take this one step at a time and you know it's like i said on the podcast i released uh monday you know fear is is nothing more than an irrational emotional response response to things not yet seen experienced or understood and so that's part of what we're dealing with right now we just don't know uh as much about this virus as as we could and so it's the unknown part of it that we've never seen this particular strain. And oh, by the way, the influenza virus has been mutating for eons. All right. right. This is nothing new to human beings. Right. But right. Uh, uh, it's the fact that this is an unknown strain Absolutely. of the virus that we don't know so much about it. And my favorite all time definition of fear is the it's an acronym. F.E.A.R. stands for future events appearing real. All right. Yeah. So it's yeah, just it's kind that. of like it's uh, we just have this unknown future that uh, and it's kind of like what what's the worst case scenario. So, yeah, I, I think this is all eventually going to blow over. Hmm. But if there's any positive to it, I, I think that to me, it definitely shows the that this universal health care and Medicare for all is just not 
wouldn't do any better at coping with the virus. Right. That, uh, and, and I think there is definitely a lot of problems with the current healthcare system that we have, but mm-hmm. I just don't see Medicare for all as anything that's going to solve the problems to me the private membership associations is going to be much more effective at uh dealing with the problems that we have in our current healthcare system i really do believe that i was talking to scott one day and we were we were having the conversation very similar to that and uh he said you know the thing about that drives me crazy about leftists is they have the right diagnosis but they have the wrong prescription I was like, yeah, that's about right. Well, I've told I've told many a socialist that the that the mistake they make is that they compare their vision of an ideal economic system with the real world corrupt crony capitalism. So yeah, your your ideal vision looks so much better than yeah. uh, than uh, the the real world. Now, of course, I have to say, libertarian. I think libertarians make the same mistake when it comes to law. I think libertarians love to play Henry David Thoreau and think they're going to sit on Walden Pond. And, you know, and it's kind of like, well, I mean, bless you folks. I love y'all. I love to hang out with y'all. But y'all have this ideal vision of the way the legal system ought to be. And then you look at the real world legal system. So naturally, your ideal system just looks so much better. And it's kind of like, well, to me, you're making the same mistake that the socialists do. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, I think that's a problem with all ideologies is because you're speaking from everything from a philosophical point of view. Everything's, you know, you're, you're trying to solve these problems and think of it through, um, through a specific ideological lens and you're bound to miss something. And, uh, and so I think that's necessarily a problem. But one thing I always try to say whenever I'm talking about the type of system that I'm advocating for as a libertarian is I'm going, I'm, I'm all about allowing people to have their, their particular system for their particular community and, and not, not forcing me into whatever system they choose. They can pass whatever laws they would like. I would just like to live in a community that allows me the, the freedom to operate without intervention and coercion on peaceful people that's that's pretty much my whole thing and i can't i know it won't be perfect but it can't be as bad as it is today i think we can all agree we would like to see more personal liberty and less state control the vast majority of americans you know, i think there's a substantial minority that they just can't their solution to everything is a central government bureaucracy it's a religious belief in their mind mm. and it's it's i think we're never going to convert them to libertarianism i think we can show them that you know hey we do have common ground in some areas that this would be better and uh so when it comes to those people i think they they can we can show them that you know private membership associations that's better than the insurance run cartel that we currently have and i think we could use that to show them and maybe get them to kind of soften their positions and uh i I think that's something that we could do i really do are there any potential downsides to the 
private membership associations? Yes, there are. There, okay. it's, uh, it comes with a certain. The main thing is it's set up that this is the private domain, right? And it's kind of like we just, you know. So the big, huge problem is if you're operating strictly as a private membership association, mm-hmm. how do you attract new people? Right. Because it's kind of like that. That is the big danger that you have is if you're going out promoting the association or the court's going to turn around and say, well, you're not really a private membership association. If you're doing all this, you're promoting and advertising and so forth. Fortunately, in this day and age, we have this wonderful thing called the internet. And right. I, I, there's, it's basically, I argue and several others have argued that if you have a website saying that these are the benefits experienced by our members, that's not really promoting. That's just kind of like, hey, these are the benefits experienced by our members. Well, you know, there that's a that <laughs> that sword doesn't always cut just one way because um, I don't know if you remember there was the the Amish guy that was selling that salve and he was putting on that salve tube what his customers would write him, you know, um, and thank him for for making the salve and somebody had written him saying that I had put it on my skin cancer and now my skin cancer was gone. And now the, the, the man, he's a like 60 or 70 year old Amish man looking at 60 years in prison because the EPA came after him. I hadn't heard about that. Or not I the EPA, the FDA came after him. Yeah, yeah. Tom Woods had interviewed his, uh, his attorney uh, about a year or two ago. I'll have to find that for you. Yeah, it's a, it's a constant struggle we say of, of but I know there was one uh, association that was trying to use like uh, stem cells to mm-hmm. regenerate chromosomes. Right. And I mean, I did some research on it and I think their argument was very valid, but apparently the FDA jumped up and said that, uh, no, that was an untested experimental medical procedure. So we were not legally going to allow you to do it, which is another drawback I wouldn't say so far as say drawback. I'd say limitation of private membership association. You can't use it to do anything that's specifically illegal. Okay, so you can't like form a private membership association to transport cocaine. Right. Uh, you know, for well, example. Well, you can, but you're going to be caught up in the middle of the drug war. Yeah, exactly. Pablo, well, I mean, Pablo you, Escobar tried that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So anything that's uh, specifically made illegal by statutes mm-hmm. or something that uh you know had to go back in here in my notes and see it's kind of like uh i can't remember the exact phrase i use uh, yeah presents a clear and present danger of substantial evil right and uh now i think the vast majority of alternative medical people they're not that they're doing the polar opposite of doing anything that uh clear and present danger of substantial evil but we can't form a private membership association or we could do it but we wouldn't have the legal authority to overthrow the federal government for example or engage in slave trading you can't do that Uh, but uh, also one of the drawbacks is is that uh, the IRS doesn't really recognize these things to the best of my knowledge so you still have to pay taxes all right 
and uh, also insurance companies absolutely hate these. I mean, the whole thing, whole one of the main driving forces behind it is to get around insurance companies. Right. So if you're going up and it's like, hey, I need, uh, I want insurance companies to pay for the treatment done through a private membership association, the insurance company's going to say no. All right. You got to go to one of the people that we have approved of and people who are in our system. And uh, also, there have been a few cases where people have had to dissolve an existing business in order to restart as a private membership association. That has happened on a few times. Now, Do you have any details say, about how that would, how, why that happens or how that happened? Well, it, uh, it's kind of like there's different states that have different rules on it. Mm. I know that the uh, there was a movement when when the early days of this happened, the one I'm involved in with my chiropractor, where they said, well, because you're a private membership association, you cannot hire a lawyer to represent you in a court of law. Well, my response is, excuse me, but I am a member of the private membership association who just happens to be a lawyer in the state of Texas. So they're not hiring me. I'm volunteering. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, they tried to get me to go to Arkansas and made the same argument. I'm like, look, folks, I love y'all, but uh, I don't mind basically having fun with a little petty bureaucrat here in the Dallas area, but I'm not too wild about going to Arkansas and spending my own money to, to do the same thing. So you got to find somebody in another state to do that. So I know that has come up in, in particular in, in Arkansas, mm. that they came up with a rule that's said that uh, a private membership association could not hire outside counsel to represent them in a court of law. Oh, so that, ha that has come up. Hmm. That seems like a, that just seems so authoritarian, so tyrannical to say, no, you're, you're not entitled to, to legal counsel. Well, I, I make the same argument. Like says, I mean, the, in my area, it was easy, simply easier for me to say, well, it doesn't matter. So like, so what if you got that rule in this particular case, because I am a member and I can certainly represent the membership at, at a court proceeding. Right. And uh, so that was my way around it in, in one particular case. But uh, yeah, so that, that is one of the major drawbacks at this time is that they use that, that, that they can't hire an outside counsel to represent them in a court. So that is, we, we frequently, frequently see this in legal proceedings. It's kind of like a constant game of uh, hare and hound. They they set the rule here. We've, we've moved the rule out. They've set the rule out further. So that's, you see that a lot in the practice of law. And yeah. this is a new, this is a new area. And we're still working out kind of like, where do we draw the lines? And the are there, are there private memberships uh, like this in, in every state operating in every state as of now, or are they pretty limited still? I really don't know. Uh, so 
I mean, I'm sure if you look around in each individual state, it's a it's a growing practice. Okay. And I don't know just how widespread it is. Like I said, the internet has been a big uh, thing. And also one of the advantages is, is you're not limited by state boundaries. Like I talked to you about the, I'm told about the doctor in the Beaumont area right. who set it up specifically so he could treat people from Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one of the huge advantages is you can cross state lines much easier with a private membership association. So if you ask me, is there one in Louisiana? I have no idea. But like I said, I'm told there is one in Beaumont that treats people from Louisiana. Right. So like I said, one of, the, one of the advantages of the private membership association is you can cross state lines. It's much easier for the people to cross state lines. And uh, are there any other legal drawbacks that, that you've encountered or that you see as potentials? Are they uh, are are insurance companies at this time worried enough about private membership associations to where they're actually lobbying uh, the federal government to do anything about it or anything like that taking place? Probably. Uh, it's probably being done in private. Uh, I suspect there's probably a lot of dark money involved in campaign contributions. Uh, I'm told there are uh, securities and exchange security law regulations that they can they can't have more than 35 shareholders. I mean, whatever a shareholder is. So like I said, a lot of the rules are being worked out on a case by case basis. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, it's not the main focus of my law practice. And so I, I can't really talk about what's going on, you know, in Massachusetts or Virginia or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I can also tell you that uh, one of the advantages as far as just strictly with medical providers is as an attorney, we're, we keep running into what's called HIPAA, H-I-P-P-A. I've heard of it. Yeah. So what does I, that stand for? I cannot tell you off the top of my head. It deals with uh, release of private uh, patient information. Okay. I mean, for example, uh, your wife, Beatrix, you just heard somebody says that she's in a hospital uh -huh. and you call up the, you know, the hospital and start calling up hospitals in Beaumont. Like, Hey, I'm looking for my wife, Beatrix. Is she there? They're like, well, we can't tell you unless she signs a HIPAA release. I mean, it's, it's that strict as far as release of, of information that patients hospitals cannot even let somebody know that someone is a patient in their hospital unless they sign a HIPAA release. Hmm. release information well the private membership association gets around a lot of those hipaa requirements restrictions okay. as far as releasing so that's another huge advantage of it uh, it's much more able to kind of like just give out just basic medical just to be able to tell family hey this is where she's at okay yeah. so uh i can tell you as a lawyer uh dealing with hip getting hipaa releases signed to release information is a major problem. And so the private membership association gets around that. Okay. And, and also well, one of the also big drawbacks is, it's kind of like you got, because they're able to cross lines, but you ha may have different levels within association for things like state, local and federal practices of what they can do. 
So you may have something that's illegal in Texas, but legal in Nevada. Right. A, a medical procedure. Okay. Well, so kind of like you, you may have like a someone that's, uh, you know, the provider care, you know, crosses the state lines and said, well, this was perfectly legal for me to do if I was in Texas. And Nevada says, well, you weren't in Texas at the time you did it, though. So, you know, that that's something that you have to watch out for. Right. Right. So this this is actually the one of the most intriguing parts I, I'm finding in this is is my mind's working because I've always been of the kind of mindset that if somebody wants to practice, you know, whatever kind of religion or, or medical, uh, seek out any kind of medical care, it's, it's up to them. Now, I know there are certain things like you were, you brought up stem cells earlier and, and stuff like that, that, that are, there are uh, legalities around stuff like that. But I, I can see this as a potential for people of different religions um you know they i mean just as an example and it's a silly example but but like if somebody really believed in voodoo you know like that's they wouldn't need you know insurance to go to you know their their local you know facility to to get whatever procedures or spells or whatever cast upon them they could actually open up a, a little membership type facility very similar to this and and deal locally and so I, I find that really interesting that 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 it opens up so much freedom for everybody in in so many different ways especially when it comes to the, your autonomy and and your the care that you're giving your own body you know so like holistically you could you know if you want to seek out somebody who's who believes in like herbs and in these holistic medicines, you can, you could actually form a membership around that, you know? So that, that seems really interesting to me. Well, also you have the advantage of, uh, when you're treating patients in the public sphere, you can get into a great deal of trouble for refusing to treat a public quote, quote unquote, public patient, <laughs> or is uh, on the opposite. If you're treating a member, of the association, you can kick them out for any reason, for no yeah. reason at all. He's yeah. like, you know what? Being a jerk, I'm kicking you out. Right. So I don't like you your know, haircut. That, yeah, I don't like your haircut. I'm kicking mm -hmm. you out. All right. So, you know, that's also an advantage. And uh, like I said, I can tell you that, you know, I was seriously involved in yoga when I was doing the uh, rehab for my elbow. And uh, I mean, the vast majority of the people I were around in yoga were just wonderful people and the females in particular <laughs> were great to be around <laughs> but uh you know every so often there was somebody who's just a total jerk and they say hey get out of here <laughs> all right whereas if you're a healthcare provider in the public sphere you can get into a great deal of trouble for refusing to quote treat a public patient right and so that's another w advantage that the uh, private membership associations have and mm -hmm. uh also, you talk about the disadvantages. Now, I'm, I'm a lawyer now, so and I, I will admit that my profession has been part of the responsibility for driving up health care costs. 
Uh, however, if you are in a private membership, uh, they can have restrictions about one member being able to sue another member or the association. So yeah, if you have a medical malpractice claim for, you know, the example you used of the, uh, the Amish guy with his oil to cure cancer, kind of like you don't have a hard time. You may have a hard time suing the guy for medical malpractice. Right. Yeah. Cause, uh, and they usually don't have medical malpractice insurance either. And, uh, I, like one of the whole purposes is to get around the requirements of insurance. Well, you're trying so, to avoid the entire bureaucracy. So it's, it's well, not you're trying to avoid the main thing for me personally, like I said, was to, to avoid the stupid cartel requirement that I had to consult with an orthopedic surgeon before I could go to physical therapy to rehab, rehab a broken arm. Right. I mean, it's kind of like, like I said, being a lawyer, I saw immediately that that was just a means to make money for orthopedic surgeons <laughs> and it served no real legitimate purpose other than just making money for orthopedic surgeons. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to get away from that. So that's what led me down this path. Well, I mean, that's really interesting. I, I'm going to have to look up and do some more research on this and I'm going to have to find this guy in Beaumont that you're talking about. He may not be there anymore. So I'm, I'm just told he was there. Okay. <laughs> so, but I mean, if you check around Beaumont, you'll probably find, and like I said, the internet is a wonderful way to uh, find these people. And uh, so the, the big, huge danger is the courts and bureaucrats saying that, well, you're not in private, you're promoting yourself publicly. And so that the, the internet is great because I, th I think you can make a legitimate argument is the the membership association is allowed to have a website yeah and they're allowed to say here's the benefits experienced by our members and so that's a, a great way for to con to find them and contact them without them say without uh, the bureaucracy and the the cartel saying that they are they're promoting themselves publicly yeah well you got any uh final comments about this anything that we didn't touch on that you feel like is important to to get out there well nothing else i can think of in the moment but uh i think it's a, a way that's going to help people but uh I, th I think it really ties in to you know police power is only supposed to protect the public Mm -hmm. uh, we're supposed, still supposed to be based on uh, liberty and freedom, and that uh, the the best basic principle of law is that you can do anything except what the the law specifically forbids. Right. And so, in our legal system, there is a tradition that people need to know about and understand better. And I I think that this ties in very well with a, a legal system. And the non-aggression principle that we libertarians talk about that as long as you're not hurting other people that you can peacefully assemble in private groups to do things without the government inf interference well and i'm sure a lot of the people that are listening to me are harry brown fans so they're all looking for freedom in an unfree world right now <laughs> well good luck That's all i can say is good luck okay <laughs> all right i'm gonna shut this down all right. All right. Have a good time. Talk to you later. All right, buddy.
Alright, I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.